We are going to be in Acts chapter 12 this morning, and we're going to be taking on almost the entire chapter. So I am going to speed read through this before Pastor Tim comes and delivers the word. So we're going to start in verse 1 and go through verse 19. I would encourage you to take out your Bibles, uh, your phones. You can, of course, read along on the screen with us. So Jane, uh, Acts chapter 12, uh, starting in verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to him how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. All right. Thank you, Pastor Matthew, for reading. That's a long section. And interestingly, it's going to be one of the more brief sermons in the whole series. How am I going to do that? That's going to be so interesting to see if it really works. <laughs> All right. I'm going to uh, ask you a question. 
Do you recall the last spiritual trial that you have experienced? All of us go through spiritual trials in life. So let's at least start out understanding what is a spiritual trial. And I'm going to answer it quite simply with one word. Tests. Every spiritual trial is a test. It's an examination. And it will examine and evaluate the condition of our faith. And as we endure them by God's grace and we pass them, our faith grows stronger. So again, can you think right now, what is the most recent spiritual trial that you have experienced? Maybe it was or is a severe health issue that absolutely rocked your trust in the great physician. Or perhaps a job loss that threatened your security and now you're really battling with something that perhaps you never battled before, anxiety. Or a life change that you seem helpless to prevent and you're struggling with some anger towards God. Or maybe even the death of a loved one who you prayed hard to be healed and you are struggling with disappointment with the God you know had the power to heal. Or maybe even a child who is walking away from God and your parents' heart is begging God to intervene and nothing seems to be happening. You see, trials provoke a response. And listen, they provoke a response in the very deepest part of your heart where it is just you and God. See, trials, friends, are the fastest means that I know of to take you vertical to examine how well you trust your Lord. And we're about to see a very sudden, severe trial come against Peter and against the church at Jerusalem. And we have a lot to learn that can endure us through our own spiritual trials that we are going to have. I'm going to give you four points and I want to encourage you, friends, listen as if your spiritual life depends on it. I truly believe it does. These are so important, and this message is critical for all of us. Number one, settle it now in your mind. Spiritual trials are a guarantee for every Christian. They're guaranteed. It's not if I have a spiritual trial, friends, it is when, and you are either in a trial right now, or you have recently been in one, but I'm going to guarantee you, you will be going back into one shortly. And we begin to unlock this and unpack this in verse 1. Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So we've got Luke who wrote the book of Acts. He also wrote the gospel according to Luke. He is a doctor. He is a consummate researcher. He introduces us to a king of the Jews named Herod, who suddenly, without warning, has James the apostle killed. And then he puts Peter in prison, and Peter is on death row. His execution is scheduled to be next. Now listen, friends, it can be really confusing when you try to untangle all of the Herods 
and the New Testament. It's a bit of a quagmire. So you might remember reading of Herod the Great. He was that bloodthirsty ruler who was the king of Jews when Jesus was born. But you need to know that every king of the Jews in the New Testament was only the king of the Jews at the whim of the Roman emperor. They were a vassal. They were a puppet power to Rome. Herod the Great was ahead of a wicked, wicked dynasty. He was married ten times. Wives, I want you to look at your husbands right now and say, I love you. Okay, maybe you don't need to do that. But this Herod the Great is married ten times. Can you imagine that, being the wife, the next wife of this guy? He was murderous to all people. He was, he's the one that gave the order, kill all the babies, all the male babies in Bethlehem under two years old. And a great cry of grief went up from that town. He was trying to protect his throne from the king of the Jews, the real one, Jesus. He killed one of his wives. <laughs> Listen to this, understandably, that woman's mother complained. So he killed his mother-in-law. And then he killed three of his sons. One emperor said it's better to be Herod's pig than one of Herod's, Herod's sons. The last of his sons that he killed, the third one, he did it five days before his own death. But this Herod of chapter 12 is the grandson of that Herod called Herod the Great. This is Herod Agrippa I. His rule was A.D. 37 through 44. And his father, Herod Agrippa, his father, Aristobulus, was one of the sons that his grandfather, Herod the Great, killed. And you know what they did afterwards, after they killed Agrippa's father, Aristobulus? They whisked young, Arist uh, young Agrippa away for his own protection and put him up in Rome for a good Roman education. And he grew up in Rome and made friends with many who would be future emperors, but he racked up a considerable amount of debt, and his creditors came calling, and he escaped Rome. But he made a mistake. He made a slanderous comment towards the emperor, and he was put into prison. That emperor that put him into prison died, and then his boyfriend friend, Caligula, who you probably have heard of, became the emperor, let him out of prison, and put him as a king over northern Palestine, and then Caligula died, and Claudia came to the throne, and he expanded Herod Agrippa's rule to now encompass Judea and Samaria. Agrippa was the quintessential politician. When he was in Rome, he lived like the Romans. When he was with the Jews, he would observe their feasts and their sacrifices. But Herod Agrippa was always on shaky ground with the Roman emperor. And let me tell you why that's significant for you to know. You see, here's what would happen. And by the way, this happened with Pontius Pilate as well. Nothing was important than these two Latin words to the Roman emperor, Pax Romana, meaning the peace of Rome. They wanted to subjugate the entire empire, but give them the freedom to do what they wanted as long as they would pay their taxes and as long as they would not rise up and fight. If they did either not pay their taxes or rise up and fight, then the military might of Rome would come down upon them. And all it took for Herod Agrippa I 
to be deposed and likely executed would be an uprising in Jerusalem and a letter of contempt from the Jewish leaders to the Roman emperor. He was on thin ice with the Jews. He hated them, but he had to curry their favor. So what does he do? Now we're back in the story. He executes James, the first martyred apostle. This is James, the brother of John, sons of Zebedee, fishing partners with Peter and Andrew. Peter and Andrew were brothers. John and James were brothers. They had a fishing enterprise together. He, ex he executes James. He beheads him. He puts Peter on death row. And now we've got to look just a little bit deeper for a moment. I want you to hear this, Christian. Jesus had warned us, not just his disciples, but all of his disciples at any age, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore, Christian brother and sister, the world hates you. And we're going to face trials, and I'm going to tell you right now that your trial, your spiritual trial, will almost never make sense. And they will always come without warnings, and they will always come with you and I being utterly unable to prevent them. I just told you three really important things. you got to bury it into your mind that trials will not make sense. They will not have a warning that they're coming. And they will not be preventable in your power. And sometimes trials, which are these tests of your faith, come from the hand of God directly. And sometimes they come from the ploys and the tactics of the devil. But always, even if they're coming from Satan himself, they can only come against you with divine sovereign permission. See, God's purpose in every one of our trials is to endure our faith and make it stronger. And Satan's purpose, without exception, is to make your faith fail. Break your trust in God. Do you hear that? That is so utterly critically important. Every trial you will ever face, whether it is coming directly from the hand of God as a test for your faith or from the ploys of the devil himself, they will always, always come only by God's divine decree. And if the devil is sending it, it is to destroy your faith. And if the Father, our Heavenly Father, is sending it or allowing it, it is to make your faith prove genuine. So how is Peter going to respond? How will the church in Jerusalem respond to the trial of Herod? Well, that leads us to point number two. We need to learn to endure spiritual trials by trusting our sovereign God. Now, I've told you already, spiritual trials are a guarantee for every Christian. Number two, we've got to endure them by trusting our sovereign God. Look at the second part of verse 3. Would you look at your, your, your Bible with me? This was during the days of unleavened bread. All right, quick break. Let me explain that. The unleavened bread is a festival. They had three high holy days. The greatest festivals of the Jews, the eight-day unleavened bread was one of them. It was also called the Passover. It began day one with the celebration of the Passover. The Egyptian, the, uh, the Israelite, uh, redemption from deliverance from Egypt, and then it went seven more days, encompassing eight. This is the festival of unleavened bread. It's eight days long. 
And when Herod had seized Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover, after those eight days, to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. James now, he's been put to death with a sword. You know what that means, right? Not impaling. He's beheaded. And Herod waited a bit. He wants to see what's the reaction of the Jewish leaders going to be. And when he saw that they were pleased, he then arrests Peter and he puts him in prison and then waits until the eight-day festival is over. His plan is the day after the festival concludes, now Peter will die. And on one level, you can see the political maneuvering on Herod's part. But listen, friends, you've got to go deeper with your eyes of faith. This is an all-out assault of the devil to destroy the church. For Herod targets the top apostle, Peter. Do you know that this happens in churches? Do you know that in churches in America... The attack of the devil rarely comes from outside. It will, as we get closer to the return of Christ. But right now, most attacks of the devil emerge from the inside. Through strife and through dissension. You know what God says in Proverbs 6? There are six things I hate, seven of which are an abomination to me. I don't think God can be more clear, and here's one of them. Those who spread discord among the brothers. Friends, I'm in a trial right now. I'm going to be very honest. I try to always be very transparent with you. We've got a trial. You know, I had a guy come to church this morning who's not part of our leadership. He walks in and makes a beeline to me. I'm in the back, I'm worshiping, he makes a beeline to me, and he says, Pastor Tim, I don't know what it is, but when I walked in here, I could sense a spiritual war going on. I'll tell you what, God makes some people very sensitive to the battle that rages around us. He's right, there is a war. There are a few people in this church who are spreading strife, and they're spreading discord. And it always, always, friends, listen, it always goes to the top. It goes to me as a lead pastor here. It goes to whoever is the lead pastor of any church. We've got to realize that. The reason I'm telling you this, we've got to pray. Pray for the elders. They're about to step up and start praying and fasting and seeing what's going on and, and wading into this battle. So you need to be praying for us. Well, here's Herod. He's waiting a bit to see the reaction. And when they're pleased, now he arrests Peter. But there's a, there's a battle going on below the political maneuvering. This is the devil trying to destroy the church. And that's always the motivational power behind strife in a church. It's always coming from the devil. And every trial is a call to battle. And it is a battle for your faith. And winning it gives glory to God. Herod arranged Peter's execution for maximum exposure. Do you realize that hundreds of thousands of pilgrims 
are in Jerusalem for this festival. He wants maximum exposure. He times it for the end of the eight-day Feast of Unleavened Bread. He plans to kill him the day after the festival ends. Look at verse 6. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, the night before, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. Now go back to verse 1 for a second, because I think you probably want to see just how zealous Herod was to kill Peter. He had four squads of soldiers. Look at verse 4. He assigned four squads of soldiers to guard Peter. That's 16 soldiers. They're divided into four squads, four soldiers each, covering all four shifts of the day. Two of them are chained to Peter. Two of them are guarding the prison door. He knew, he remembered, Herod did, what happened in Acts 5.19. Peter's already been put in prison once. That time with John, and God delivered both of them. He had a prison break. So, he, so Herod takes extra precaution. And all the while, look at verse 5, earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. If you want to see the power of really believing that God is sovereign, look no further than Peter on the night before his execution. Look at verse 6, he is sleeping between two soldiers. He is dead asleep. He's sleeping so deeply, look at verse 7, you almost have to laugh. An angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. The light did not wake him. The angel, I think, kicks him in the ribs with his foot to rouse him from his slumber. Now, friends, listen, let's get the gravity of the situation. Peter's about to die. He already knows James has been put to death. He knows his fate. And he's asleep. How many of us, when we're going through trials, can't sleep or wake up with terrible dreams all throughout the night? Peter is asleep. Why? Because he knows the sovereign decree of the Lord rules all. And if it is his death, then it is God's perfect will. If it is not his death, God will deliver him. He knew Isaiah 26, 3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Friends, don't you think that Peter might have remembered that boat ride on the Sea of Galilee when the water was swamping the boats? And where was Jesus? He was in the stern in the back of the boat with his head on a pillow, sound asleep. While all the disciples were terrified, crying out, we're going to die. Do you not think he learned from his rabbi, this disciple of Jesus, is now becoming one who's living like Jesus, and he will disciple others, 1 Peter 5, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. 
And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, look at what he'll do. He will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. God is absolutely sovereign. Years ago, I took Larry Moore up to Jacobsburg Park. We went on a mountain bike ride. I'll never forget this. Larry is such an athlete. He toned it down to like level two so that I could keep up with him. And we're going around the park. And he, the last thing I remember Larry did when we got out of our cars before we started pedaling was take his keys and put them in a little seat, bicycle seat pouch. Well, we're riding, we did, I still remember this with eerie clarity, we did just over 10 miles, and I've done so many miles of riding up at Jacobsburg, I literally could remember the entire route that we just did, all 10 miles of it. We got back to the car, he goes to get in his car, and his seat bag had opened during the ride, and, this, and the keys weren't in it. Poor Larry was so upset. I said, Larry, let's pray. We prayed right there in the parking lot. We said, God, would you just help us to find his keys? Over 10 miles of riding in a Jacobsburg park. So I said, Larry, I know exactly that entire route. Let's go redo it. We did the whole 10 miles again and slowed down in certain sections. He found his keys in the tall grass on the side of a trail. Friends, God is sovereign. God is utterly sovereign. There was another time, I have a lot of stories at Jacobsburg Park. I'm heading up to Jacobsburg Park, and I've got a, a, um, a car, I had an old, Oldsmobile, Oldsmobile at that point. And I am driving up Sullivan Trail Road. I get to the airport, Braden Airport, and there I remember, wait a minute, I don't think I have my helmet with me. And I don't ride at Jacobsburg Park without my helmet. So I said, i got to go home. We lived in Palmer. We lived near Tatamy in Penn's Grant Development, Corrier Road. I said, i got to go home and get that. This is before cell phones. I didn't even have a cell phone. I go home, and as I'm pulling into our development, Denise, my wife, is pulling out. And in the very back seat of our van is Matthew, my oldest son, holding his broken arm. I, pull, I, forgot, I never forget my helmet, but I forgot it that day. And God knew what was going to happen. And he got me home literally at the precise moment Denise was coming out, who had handed off our other two children. Andy was a born then. Handed off our other two children to the neighbors to watch, allowing me to take over and take Matthew to the hospital while Denise went back to our children. Friends, don't ever doubt God is sovereign. But do you know what sovereignty means? It means that God has all might and all right to do what he wishes and bring everything into conformity with his will. That's what it means when we say God is sovereign. Everything that God will do for you or to you or allow the devil to do to you has an exact purpose that conforms with his will. And it could not be any more perfect. Well, that didn't seem very perfect. A couple months ago, when I was down in Maryland and got a call from my family that our dog, Charlie, our beloved dog, I love this dog. How can I be such a sap? <laughs> How can dogs get this much of our hearts? He's not doing well. I prayed all week. We knew he was coming to the end. I prayed all week. God, 
you just spare our family? Just let Charlie die peacefully in his sleep. I prayed all week for that. And you know what? It didn't happen. Matthew and I had to put him down. Man, you know what I fought with? God, how hard is it to just do that? But I've got to trust. I've got to trust. You know what came out of that? As painful as it was, our family, once again, a little more deeply, grew in our hatred of death and our thankfulness that the final enemy is already dying and it will be fully overcome and there will be no more death one day. Amen? Christian, believe it. God is absolutely sovereign, and it moves us to the third point. Focus, then, on obedience, not getting out of your spiritual trial. You see, finding your, your quick escape from a trial is not an option for a Christian. It forfeits the lesson. So go back to the prison break that's in process in Acts chapter 12. Peter thinks this is all a dream. He thinks he's having a vision. So the angel gives him very particular instructions that interface with the physical world so that the reality would sink in. Verse 8, dress yourself, put on your sandals, wrap your cloak around you, follow me. You see, all Peter has to do is respond in obedience. He won't be able to drop the chains. He won't be able to open the door. All he needs to do is obey. But he did not know, verse 9, that what was being done by the angel was real. He thought it was, he was seeing a vision. But he followed the angel. And the chains just fell off. The iron gate opened of its own accord. God's power broke the gates. God's power opened the, the prison gates. Uh, God's power broke the chains. What did Peter do? He simply obeyed God. He, he did what the angel directed him to do. And friends, I want you to hear it. He contributed absolutely nothing to his rescue. Nothing. See, God brings us out of a trial when he knows it is time and it will not be one second too late. And that's the great hope of the gospel for all who are in a trial. The Lord sets the prisoners free. So friends, if you're in your spiritual trial, it's custom designed for you by God himself. Sit in that trial, trusting him and his sovereignty, and obey what he tells you to do. And it will lead, and it should lead, to number four. In your trial, ask Christians to pray that your faith will stand the test and shine. The angel leaves Peter in a back alley of Jerusalem. But now his senses are restored, so he takes these alleys to Mary's house. She is the mother of young Mark. Mark is the one who wrote the gospel of Mark. Mark went on journeys, missionary journeys with Paul and Barnabas. Mark is the translator for Peter. He's, no, he's Roman. He's Greek. He knows the Greek language. It's why he wrote Mark. It's really the gospel of Peter, but Mark wrote it. And he knocks, Peter does, on the locked gate of Mary's home. And a young servant girl was so surprised that she leaves Peter at the gate and runs inside to tell everyone that Peter was here. 
But this is what we do with young people. We don't really put a lot of confidence in what they say, right? It's why it's so amazing to have the youth band lead us in worship this weekend. But Rhoda, this little girl, this young girl persists, so they become convinced. I guess, verse 15, it's Peter's guardian angel. Maybe Peter's dead. Herod beheaded him. But why would an angel need to knock? See, this whole story, friends, if you really, really are paying attention, is so full of humorous moments. To their shock, they discover it actually was Peter. And Peter tells them how the Lord saved his life, and then Peter departs to a safe location. And it's a good thing, because the next day, Herod furiously searches for him. He cannot find him, and he puts to death that squad of four soldiers that was guarding him. And what an incredible story of deliverance. And it gives us powerful, mighty help in our own spiritual trials. So friends, here's how we're going to close. I want you to imagine again, and I want you to think again. Are you in a spiritual trial in your life? You're either in one, or you recently came out of one. But I will promise you, you're going to be heading back into one. They are the means to make our faith grow. But remember four things. Christians, spiritual trials are guaranteed. It's not a maybe. It's a win. And trust God that he is absolutely in control and he is in control of the severity of the trial, the purpose of the trial, and friends, the length of your spiritual trial. So number three, don't focus on getting out of that trial as fast as you can. Focus on obeying God in your trial. And the way that you're going to be able to do that is ask believers to pray for you that your trial may endure your faith and you will stand the test and glorify your God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you Lord, for the truths of this passage, Lord, it could hardly be more serious for Peter and the church of Jerusalem. But Lord, they honored you so much and so well. Lord, they truly understood what I've been teaching, Lord, that there is a guarantee to our trials. And Father, they are always under your decree, whether they come from your hand directly Or, Father, whether they come from the hand of the enemy, there is nothing the enemy can bring to us which does not first go through your hands. And, Lord, what we are being called to do is not find our fastest way out of the trial. Our flesh wants it. But, Lord, our faith needs the trial. Let us obey. Give us the grace to obey. And know and trust that you will bring us out of it the moment you decide to do so. Lord, we need to obey and we need to withstand that trial by asking believers, please pray for me. Please pray for us. That our faith will endure the trial and grow. We will pass the test and bring glory to our God. Lord, we ask for your help. We ask for your grace. And we ask for these truths, Lord, to be imprinted on us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.